Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the ETFO is making it pretty clear to the province and to parents that they are not messing around, they're starting next week with more province-wide strikes, at least once a week for the meantime anyway. The Vrancourt Group is looking to make a proposal to City Council in hopes of developing the downtown entertainment district. And we've all heard about the coronavirus and some people even the mindset that, well, this is just China's problem. We're going to get some clarity on that issue as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, rotating strikes still continue, of course, the one-day walkouts. Uh, it's the teachers against the Ford government. Uh, and it seems to be a standoff at this stage. Uh, the, the teachers have announced a different strategy right now. The government, uh, well, we'll talk about the government in just a second. Not quite sure what their strategy is here. Uh, Jeff Sorensen is the president of the Hamilton Wentworth Elementary Teachers uh, here in this area, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update on where they're going on this. Jeff, good morning. Thanks for the time today. Good morning. How are you today? Good. Listen, maybe you could help clarify something for me. I've, I've sure. been listening to you, and, and, and we've, we've had Harvey Bischoff and others on this talking about some of the concerns that all of the unions seem to be expressing right now. And, and of course, we've also heard from uh, Mr. Lecce, who is the education minister, you, you guys, you're not even on the same page. You're not even on the same planet when it comes to this. I mean, you start talking about things like class size uh, and, and, of course, e-learning and a number of different things like this. And, uh, and all, all Mr. Lutchie seems to be talking about is money. Uh, you know, they, they want more money, and we just don't have it for them. It, uh, there's an incongruity here that I see anyway, Jeff. There is, and, and, and it's one that's been going on now for half a school year, six months. We have proposals on the table about some of the items you just uh, mentioned, and uh, we have yet to hear any feedback, any counter proposals, any discussion except for the sound bites in the media. Um, and I understand that it, you know money is is obviously around just about every contract negotiations. But I, I, from what you're telling me, and from what I'm hearing from some of the frontline people I've talked to, teachers in general. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the main issue. It seems to be these other issues that have been on the table actually since they introduced them about a year and a half or so ago. Absolutely. Class size is, is critical for us. Uh, it's critical for learning for students. Uh, no one advertises, uh, you know, bigger classes are better for kids, except for Duck Ford. Um, but uh, we want a full-day kindergarten model that Quebec is now copying because it's so good. Uh, he won't, uh, Duck Ford, Lecce won't commit to that uh, model. Uh, we want supports for special ed. Uh, we want, uh, you know, violence to be addressed. These things cost money, and they need to be negotiated at a bargaining table, um, and they're just not there. Uh, even when they show up, they tell us they don't even have the authority to bargain. So we've been sitting across the table when we do sit across the table from people who uh, who don't even have the ability to negotiate with us. Take us inside that room for a second. I understand you know you, you can't get into some of the finer details about what's being discussed, but the, is there any substantive conversation here to try to move the yardsticks? Uh, not from that side, absolutely not. We've come with proposals. We've told them that we're willing to negotiate, we're willing to talk, uh, and the other side uh, simply repeats uh, the same thing over and over again. In addition, something that um, they want us to find $150 million in savings on our own. So they've just, besides not committing to those those programs I've mentioned, they want us, elementary teachers, for some reason, and only us, to come up with $150 million of efficiencies somewhere in the system. I, I don't know what that's about, and, and it, to me it's mind-boggling. And again, this is the thing I think that's that's causing a great deal of consternation for the public here is because we don't even see uh, substantive negotiations going on here. It's not as if they're going back and forth and saying, okay, you guys want black, you got white, let's try some shades of gray here. Uh, There's a a dance going on here, and it's not really helping anybody. Absolutely, and and please know that, you know, whenever we um, enter into a new phase of our work to rule, whether uh, it's the most recent one, We've always said that we just want them to be at the table engaging in meaningful discussions. It's not that we want a deal or we will do X, Y, or Z. It's we want to have a negotiation. We don't need a finished product in order to uh, start uh, in a different direction. We're just looking for the respectful legal dialogue, which under the collective agreements and under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms we're entitled to. So. 
I, I'm not going to try to, you know, guess what the strategy of the government is at this stage. I mean, it seems to be stall, stall, stall. I think when we talked a week or so ago, I had uh, suggested that possibly what these guys are doing is playing a waiting game, waiting for public opinion to turn against you and in favor of the government. But there's, uh, as you saw, a poll that was released yesterday that indicated that support for the teachers has actually increased in the last 10 days. Exactly. And, you know, this is, um, besides the fact that we have four teachers unions all working in the same direction this time, which hasn't happened in 20 years, but uh, the public support, I think, is, is incredible. I think they understand that uh, we truly are fighting for long-term, universal public education that's, that quality. Um, it, it's not about salaries. It's not about compensation and benefits and all those things that board says it's about. Um, and that anything that has to happen short term to get the government to the table um, is an inconvenience. It's it's unpleasant, but it, it's for the purpose of a long term goal. There's a couple of different fronts here that this battle seems to be being waged on, uh, and one of them, of course, is uh, as you say, the, the the way that we're educating our children, or the way that the government's proposing that we educate our children, uh, vis-a-vis larger classrooms, uh, e-learning, uh, eliminating teaching jobs. It really seems to be one of the the end results of all of that. Uh, the, but there's a second path here that's a, a parallel path too. Uh, and that's a, a court action against the idea that uh, that the government's arbitrarily imposed a one percent salary increase on on not just teachers, but other government employees at the same time, uh, which pretty much precludes anything of quote unquote uh, negotiating any sorts of these deals too. Uh, but they seem to conflate those two issues when when they go to before the microphones. Absolutely, um, and, and you know this is for a government that's looking to save money. It's it's incredible because. They know that previous governments who have tried to do the same sorts of legislation have lost in courts, whether it's in Ontario or B.C. Uh, It's a failed strategy. It's one that will only end up costing them money. Uh, And if they're worried about saving taxpayer money, uh, intentionally violating the Constitution in a losing uh, effort is, to me, is, is ridiculous. So, what's the strategy from your standpoint right now? I mean, the, I mean, you want to get the the negotiations underway again. You want some 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 wholesome negotiations here, where there's some back and forth on some of these key issues. That's not happening right now. Uh, do you think what you're doing and what the other unions are doing right now is 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 moving them in that direction, or have they just dug in their heels? Uh, well, I suspect they've dug in their heels. Unfortunately, unions don't have a lot of uh, tools. Uh, we can withdraw our labor in negotiations. Uh, we don't like to. Uh, many of our members would rather be, I, I have to say all of our members would rather be working and teaching uh, like they do every day. Uh, but we can withdraw our labor. We've tried to do it in a way that doesn't affect education, which doesn't affect learning or extracurriculars. Uh, that didn't work. So what can we do? We can increase our work to rule and we can withdraw even more services at some point we hope that uh, the ministry and the education hear from parents who are upset and 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 that effort not necessarily just from unions but from teachers from sorry from parents and from kids uh will we'll come back and, and convince ford to come to the table He's seeing the same polls that we're seeing, so I, I'm not sure why he's not coming back to the table. What are you hearing from the rank and file, from your members? They're determined. Uh, we have extremely great solidarity in Hamilton. We had uh, a 98% strike vote. Uh, so, I mean, that tells you something also about Ford saying that union leaders such as myself or Sam Hammond are out of touch with their own members. We're democratically elected. We have these amazing numbers of support. Uh, we know our members would rather be in school, but are prepared to do what it takes to get Ford back to the bargaining table. Well, and that's anecdotally what I've heard, too, and I've had conversations with some of the teachers, uh, in not just in this community, but in some of the other communities over the last couple of weeks. Uh, to a person, what they're telling me anyway, Jeff, is they don't want to strike. Uh, they don't have any appetite for that at all, but by the same token, they're strongly behind mm-hmm. what they're doing to try to, to get the government to come to the table and talk about some of these issues. So there's, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be any wavering on either side right now. No, and I, I think it's important for people to know that a two-day walkout would be equivalent to 1% of our salary. And so the salary that Doug Ford is proposing, after a two-day walkout, we're already losing money to a person. 
Uh, and so that tells you it's not about compensation. It's not about salary. It's about something bigger. It's about education in Ontario. What what do you need to hear to to give you a, a, a glimmer of light that maybe there's going to be some some movement and some negotiations here? I'd like to hear that uh, the government is is giving us dates and saying let's get back to the table. Uh, you know, we might not agree. Uh, we might not get exactly everything that we want, uh, but to be uh, at least engaged in a meaningful way at a bargaining table, I think would give me hope. What's stopping that from happening now? Uh, you'd have to ask Doug Ford. I, I, I'm not sure his game, except for which is has been a political game from the Tories for years, back to Mike Harris, which is create a crisis uh, and use that to dismantle universal public education. So you feel, and I, this is what I'm hearing from other union members as well, you feel that the ball's in their court right now. It's it's their move. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. With a phone call, this could all be over. Well, uh, to, to at least start negotiations. I, I, I'd be very surprised if, if you got a call from <laughs> Mr. Lecce this afternoon and said, you know what, whatever you guys want, let's just sign the papers and go. That's not going to happen. But at no, least no, have some discussion here. Exactly, and that's what I mean when this could all be over. I mean, we could suspend this uh, if there was something meaningful, if there was something, uh, you know, a reach out to ETFO, to OSSTF to say, okay, let's just put a pause at all this. Let's not escalate anymore either side. Let's get back to the bargaining table and, and, and get education working for, for the students of Ontario again. Interesting discussion I had uh, was yesterday afternoon with a friend of mine who remembers those days, those awful days back in the 1990s when there was the lockout and a strike. Uh, we don't want to see a repeat of that. But uh, he drew the analogy of watching what's going on in Washington these days and what's going on here vis-a-vis these negotiations. Uh, it seems as if the Ford government's acting very much like the Trump defense team. Uh, when it's time for them to present their side of this, uh, they're not doing anything substantive to try to justify what they've done or what they've proposed to do here. They simply take shots at the other side, uh, personal shots oftentimes, too. And what I'd like to see as a taxpayer is if the government really and truly believes that e-learning and eliminating teaching jobs and, and larger class sizes are actually going to be beneficial, show me the proof. I mean, just like the, you guys, the teachers say, you know, show me the work. Uh, and I'm not seeing that. I haven't seen it since the day they made that announcement, and I'm, I'm very frustrated by that. Uh, and I, if you, with each passing day that you don't get any substantive information to, to validate what they're proposing to do, you start to wonder if there is any information that would validate what they're supposed to be doing. I, I have yet to see any. And I, I think the proof is in, you know, the, the, the direction that Doug is moving is private schools and charter schools. If you look at their advertising, none of them ever ever say come to our school we have larger classes or we'll put your child in front of a computer and let them teach themselves um they talk about smaller classes they talk about one-to-one they talk about uh dedicated teacher time and and so uh you know if, if it's good enough for the wealthy of the province it should be good enough for every student in the province well, I, I'm frustrated as a taxpayer because I, I, I hate to see this, this stalemate that's, that's uh, clearly going on right now. Uh, the unions, of course, are developing strategies on this, and I'm, I'm not sure where the government's going on this. As we uh, suggested the other day, I, I, I think they're, they're hoping that the, the public opinion is going to turn or that they're going to try to goad you into it to simply walking off altogether, in which case they introduce back-to-work legislation. Uh, but that may not happen anytime soon because they're not even back to work. It's going to be another two or three weeks before the uh, provincial government even gets back to, to doing business here. So I'm uh, I'm not optimistic at this stage, Jeff, that you're going to get much progress anytime soon. Unfortunately, uh, you may be right. Um, but it is an ironic that for a profession that is constantly criticized for their holidays, uh, the person who's uh, is sitting on the other side of the table isn't back from his own holidays. Well, I mean, they need time to rest up because they did take four and a half months off late last year, too. And, you know, it must be just draining to actually have to go back to work. So I, I can understand why they wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Besides, I, the, I mean, the typical Christmas holiday usually goes to the middle of February anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, well, are you just getting back to work yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand <laughs> totally. Uh, Jeff, uh, fingers crossed. Here's hoping that we get some sort of a breakthrough in this uh, sometime soon. But I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate the time to talk. Jeff Sorensen, who is the president of the Hamilton Wentworth Elementary Teachers Local. And and look, at 
this is the thing that that I think is really galling to an awful lot of people. And I, I, I referenced the polls that indicate that uh, strong support still. They're not unanimous. I know some parents are opposed to this. Some parents still think Doug Ford's doing a wonderful job as premier. Uh, and that's their opinion. I get that. But uh, they don't seem to be caving in. People seem to get the issues. And, and one of the reasons for that, that I don't know if the government understands yet, is that Parents that have kids in the school system right now have seen the impact of some of these changes that they're trying to impose and seen that it's not in the best interest of students. So this is this is not just a, a an abstract discussion here. This is, a, hey, we my son and my daughter can't get the courses they want, or, hey, the classroom sizes are bigger. Hey, I, you know, they need special help from teachers, and the teacher's not available. On and on it goes. These are the stories I'm hearing from parents, too. But nothing's going to happen until they get back to the table. And nothing's probably going to happen until the legislature resumes. Maybe that's what we should do. How about back-to-work legislation for the uh, the MPPs? There's an idea. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Late last week, uh, City Council, of course, had dealt with uh, Michael Andelar's proposal about a uh, an arena uh, up at uh, Lime Ridge Mall, along with Cadillac Fairview, of course, and uh, they gave that basically a thumbs down. The very next day, uh, we got word that the uh, Rancor Group was actually proposing another plan for downtown. Uh, Mary Frankovich uh, actually fired me off an email that that very day and said, you know, we we need to talk about this. Well, they've they've done some work on this, and I got another email from Mary over the weekend about uh, a proposal of sorts. Uh, for downtown, a vision for downtown uh, from the, uh, the the folks, of course, at Vrancourt. Uh, Mary Frankovich, of course, uh, is a project advisor with Vrancourt Group. He's been there with them, working with them, actually, for quite some time, and he joins us here in studio to talk about this. Thanks for coming in today. And by the way, thanks for the, the updates and the info on all this stuff. This is a, a an exciting time, sometimes a confusing time, when we're trying to develop a vision. Uh, well, number one, thank you, uh, Bill. Great to be here. And, and yes, it can be very confusing because there is a lot of information and processing it and putting it into an understandable order can be a challenge at times. The term, uh, that, as I'm looking at the uh, the media release here, uh, that says that they have submitted, you have submitted through Rancor, uh, a term sheet. What is that exactly? Well, I've been in the investment and finance business for... Oh, uh, that's, your, that's your real job. Yeah. That's, that's my real <laughs> job, and I've been in it for about 40 years. And, um, you know, it is a, a statement of intent with specific details of what a proposal would look like, subject to a negotiation and a definitive agreement. But it, it effectively, in football terms, it sets out some goalposts through which you want to kick a field goal and, and come to some kind of an arrangement. There's flexibility within a term sheet, but it sets broad parameters. Uh, so this isn't going to get into specifics, but it does talk about a vision. Now, you've worked off and on with Darko for many, many years right now. Uh, this is a guy who does an awful lot of work uh, without a lot of fanfare. He doesn't shine the spotlight on himself, but if you start looking around at a lot of the construction projects downtown, uh, it's him. Uh, he he's, he's, seems to be investing an awful lot of time and money uh, and, and confidence in this community. You know, absolutely. Uh, Darko has flown under the radar for much longer than he has been you know, invested in Hamilton, interested in Hamilton. Uh, you know, here's a guy who, you know, some 25 years ago looked at the potential of Hamilton and started buying significant acreage in Hamilton's downtown at $100,000 and $200,000 an acre. And, and it was it was visionary. He was ahead of his time. And people like that managed to build things. And, and he was the first person to really dive into Hamilton downtown with residential development. Then he dove into downtown Hamilton with hotel development. And, you know, the, the latest press release talks to offices. And uh, Darko believes that is the next wave of opportunity for Hamilton. And, and you know, Bill, you and I were chatting previously about how the tax base for commercial and industrial in Hamilton has been shrinking. Uh, part of this vision is to have uh, an impetus, a catalyst to help that commercial side grow. And I think it's always an important statement to be made in a community when someone who is local, who understands the marketplace, starts to invest in an area. 
And when a local person starts to build new high-grade office buildings in the core, it causes other knowledgeable people to say, well, maybe I should look at Hamilton. What about the possibility, though, the, of, of actually staffing those and, and, and having people that are going to uh, be tenants in these things? I, Mary, I'm old enough to remember uh, the, the, you know, the optimism about, you know, when Jackson Square opened up back in the early 1970s. Still think it was a bad idea to tear down old buildings, but, I mean, that's what they did at the time. And the Stelco Tower was part of that. And it was, hey, this is magnificent. You know, every, uh, within about eight or ten years, of course, it was half empty. I understand there was a terrible recession that went on, but I don't know if we have actually ever recovered. Uh, vacancy rate's always a concern when you start building towers. Where's the confidence coming from that if we build it, they will come? Well, Bill, you and I are of similar vintage, so we both remember very well <laughs> like when... fine wine. Uh, yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> so you and I both remember well when all the big banks had their regional offices in Hamilton. Yeah. So places like KW and the Peninsula, they reported into Hamilton. Well, all of those regional offices moved to Mississauga out on Financial mm -hmm. Drive. So there was an exodus. It, it occurred. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't... In including Stelco. Including <laughs> Stelco. And, and, you know, that was a wave out. Now, I, you know, I believe that there's an opportunity for a wave in. And the view of filling those office towers could be some locals. But really the impetus is folks from out of town. Folks who will sit there and say, you know, there is a high-grade office opportunity in an area where rents are lower, where there is something exciting going on. And we don't believe that you can have this draw to office space without an exciting and vibrant downtown. And, and, you know, we speak to the idea that there's a lot going on on King William and James Street with restaurants. There's a mm -hmm. lot going on. We have entertainment at the DeFasco Performing Arts Center. We have entertainment at the Living Arts Center. We have entertainment at the first concert hall. We've had some great events at the, some great large events at the arena. Uh, so th there are things to do places to eat. We now have some uh, very nice residential in the downtown that's developing. Um, the next step really could be the office and commercial because there is a draw now. And, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to look to put words in Darko's mouth. I think he should speak for himself on this issue. But my perception of the vision is the offices are enabled by all these other exciting issues that occur. And that's the prime mover for Darko saying, you know what, I'll invest a couple of hundred million dollars of investment value into a much bigger vision for the uh, arena, the uh, First Ontario Concert Hall, the convention center, and really bring it up to, um, I hate using the phrase world standards, but if you don't have technology, if you don't have bright and exciting places to go, there's so many other options. Uh, we well, need those. Let me ask we you about that. Those. Okay, and I understand that this is early days. Or it's not as if this is your proposal and it's all hammered out. Uh, a lot of discussion and a lot of negotiation, I guess. But let's let's focus on those entertainment buildings because that's really what started this conversation years ago when City Council said, look, we got to do something. And they've got someplace down in the basement in City Hall, dozens and dozens of consultants' reports about what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Uh, and some of them contradict each other, which is probably one of the reasons for the frustration. So, and if I can just kind of give a broad overview, the consensus seemed to be the first Ontario Concert Hall, Hamilton Place, as it was on, is okay. It's, it's you know, it maybe needs a little bit of paint and some dust, but it, it's it's functional. We, we, we agree with that, Bill, but the, some the, cosmetics. The two, the two controversial areas were the convention center, which is way too small for, for modern standards, and the arena. What is Darko looking at for those two facilities? Well, the urgent issue is the arena. It's, yeah. it's as you well know, uh, Bill, you followed this. There are millions of dollars that need to go into that arena right now that the city needs to spend on an emergency basis just to keep it functional. More than that, we have needs from a really great guy, Michael Ann Lauer. Uh, I mean, Virgin Vest was a, a corporate sponsor, I think, for a dozen years of the Bulldogs, mm -hmm. whether it was the AHL team or the OHL team. Got to know Michael very well. Talk about a corporate citizen. I mean, he, the, the breakfast program, we could go on and on about what he has done and what a great guy he is. 
But he has a problem. He has a, an arena that does not work for him. And so we need to not only solve the urgent issue of the repairs, we need to see if we can find something that will work for Michael. All right. But the last consultant's report that, that we got, and then Ernst & Young did, had one subsequent to this as well, basically said that it's not cost-effective to put money into that building. It's old. It's tired. Probably better to build new. Darko seems to disagree with it from what I'm reading here. He seems to think that that is salvageable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've, and we're not doing this off the cuff, by the way. So if we go back into the chronology a little bit, uh, Darko called me in early 2019 to have some blue sky conversations mm-hmm. about what could be done with the arena. And it became serious in June when he fully retained me to, to work on the project for him. We brought in. Um, uh, a good friend of mine is CFO at Ball Construction. Ball built the uh, Meridian Center. They renovated the Kitchener-Waterloo Auditorium. They've done all sorts of either new builds or renovations of arenas throughout Ontario. Uh, chatted with, uh, with them on a big picture perspective. All these guys from Ball had been at the, at the Cops Coliseum and, and, and thought, you know, superficially, that, that's something that you can work with superficially. We need to do more drill down work. They referred us to Architecture 49. Architecture 49, well known, uh, specializing in arenas. So we started to really investigate. And, you know, don't quote me on this exactly, but I, it was sometime in September we started to really get into the. Uh, structuring of the structural side of the arena, what can and cannot be done. And the conclusion is the arena is one of those buildings that has the bones that you're going to have to completely gut. Let's not kid ourselves. We're talking about a complete gut of the lower bowl in order to deliver a facility that really can work but, on many levels. But uh, that, that was going to happen anyway, if, in fact, somebody wanted to stay there. I mean, even go back to the days when Jim Balsley was proposing his NHL franchise, the, the Arizona franchise, to move here. Remember, he gave us a, an artist's conception of what he was... It basically, was gutting the arena. It was just going to be on the same location. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a, a building that needs an awful lot of work. Correct. It needs an awful lot of work. The focus needs to be on the lower bowl. The focus needs to be on... The latest of amenities, things like luge sections, club sections, we've got to upgrade the the suites. We have to introduce technology that brings down the, effectively brings down the look of the ceiling, eliminates the view of the upper bowl when the bulldogs are playing, and doing that with technology and and lighting and different uh, uh, kinds of screening that are not the screening of those, you know, black uh, curtains that we have right now. And we do need all that height. If you want one of these scoreboards that goes blue line to blue line and is massive, uh, I believe, and don't, don't quote me on this exactly, but I believe it's 26 feet is the minimum level off the ice that the scoreboard must be for NHL standards. And all the other leagues basically set their standard off of what, if you can do the NHL standard, mm-hmm. you do the <coughs> NHL standard. Well, you start at that level and you put this massive screen on, well, you need, the, you need the height. So that height has to be there. The upper bowl needs to be there. Now, how do you disguise it so that it becomes intimate? We think our architects, Architecture 49, uh, have got a fabulous plan for that. And uh, in the very near future, we'll be releasing some renderings of that. Uh, our architects have gone through... Uh, and we've received access for the the blueprints and plans of the city in order to formulate our own plans. They have gone through meticulously from an engineering and architectural perspective what can and cannot be done, including the, the two office buildings being nestled into the arena itself. It really is a fabulous plan. So... And again, I'm trying to picture this in my mind's eye. These 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 buildings that you're going to have in concert with uh, the arena itself are they going to go up on the the the, 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 the tier there? I mean, I mean, there's a, I'm, t- I'm thinking of the footprint here, Mary, on exactly where they would fit in. Maybe I have to wait for the drawing. Can I help that. you a little with that? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, the uh, steep stairs going down to York Street. Yeah. 
it's amazed me that no one has been hurt going down those stairs. And if there was ever a panic evacuation, I shudder to think how people get down there. We're creating new ac- access and exit points for the arena such that those steps become redundant. You can take them out, put up a an office building there. If you go to Bay Street, you've got that... Uh, uh, Call it airspace. And, and uh, Councillor Marula has frequently referred to airspace. There's some airspace above where the box office and entrance yeah, is. Yeah. And you can build several stories above there uh, to create office space. So th- that's where the two office buildings will be nestled into. And, and not only do they be, have functionality, and not only can they be built in to the, uh, from the engineering perspective, they're actually going to provide a quite exciting look to the exterior. Uh, the uh, consultants' reports that we've read that were released to the public anyway, Mario, talk about substantial dollars. Where's the money going to come from? Well, the good news is Darko has had substantial success in Hamilton. Uh, again, here's a guy who has purchased real estate at a in uh, significant acreage at 100 to $200,000 an acre when people were giving it away in the core. And it's worth a lot more than that. And, and, and that's been a great source to fund the, the growth of his real estate business. He has a very substantial real estate business in Hamilton, obviously, and that provides the funding. Now, the question is, the funding that Darko has the personal capability of providing, is it justified from a financial perspective? And oh, that's, as, that's your wheelhouse. Well, and, but most specifically, Chris Mlinarek, who is the yeah. CFO. I mean, he is running spreadsheets on cost and return, and it needs to be feasible. Bearing in mind that Darko also has a vested interest in our core because he's, he's so substantially invested in the core already. And, and a lift for the core does give him a bit of a natural lift. So that is taken into account. But let's make no mistakes, Bill. The numbers really do have to work. And, you know, we're talking about a $200 million uh, um, ballpark mm-hmm. for the arena, the office buildings. A brand new additional hotel, the complete renovation and doubling of the size of the uh, uh, convention center, some cosmetics for Ontario, uh, sorry, the first Ontario concert hall. And a huge spend on technology. Uh, are you looking for the city to pony money up into this project too? We are not looking for. We, so I've I've gone to a lot of GIC meetings mm-hmm. and, and listened, and the mandate that I heard from, uh, you know, not only was it uh, Councillor Marula but numerous other councillors, reinforced, no subsidies, the city is not prepared to borrow money nor draw on reserves, so. Are, but there are opportunities around licensing, permits, zoning, density. We want to continue to have some conversation around that. that that's the one variable that we really don't understand. We need clarity and we need some conversation to understand what those might mean so that we can put those into the spreadsheet. And we may not be talking about a $200 million investment here, depending on those conversations. There could be substantially more invested depending on what those conversations amount to. i got about a minute left here, and we're, <laughs> okay. and we're not even scratching the surface. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> and i got two other main questions I want to ask you, so I'm going to roll them both into the same question, and, and I'll give you 60 seconds, uh, hopefully, uh, to, to answer and, and give us some clarity on this. There are a lot of other players that have talked about doing some stuff around here over the last eight or ten years, really. Uh, it, it, does does Darko go this alone, or is he looking for, for partners into this? I mean, and I don't want to start listing the names. And the other element of this is one consistent thing through all those consultant reports is that arena's got to have a major tenant. Do you want that major tenant to be Michael Landelar and his hockey team? So let me run through that very quickly, Bill. Sure. Uh, Darko believes in collaboration. We create far more synergy and uh, symbiosis with collaboration. The other thing that Darko believes in is someone's got to be the main driver. Darko sees his vision, and he is going to be the main driver of that. Once we understand what we're dealing with, uh, in the event that we're successful with the city, then discussions for collaborations with other parties is something that I'm required by Darko to reach out to various parties because collaboration is a winning formula and we want to look at that. 
it's got to be a win-win. So we will be reaching out. And in terms of uh, Michael, we love Michael dearly. He's been a great guy. Would love to have conversations with him if we have something to have a conversation about with Michael. But we'd love to have Michael as our primary tenant. Uh, we, say, but we cannot make any representations oh, on that. that. I mean, we're, we're, we're letting Michael, you know, we're leaving Michael alone because he has something he wanted to do. We respect him for it. It would be very insulting if we tried to meddle into what he was doing. But if there is an appropriate time, love to have that conversation. Uh, this is going to be the first of many conversations, I think, Mario, about <laughs> uh, what's being proposed here. There's obviously a political side of this and a sure. business side of this and everything yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, I guess the way we finish this off is more to come, uh, hopefully Absolutely. sooner than later. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for trying to shed some light on this, Mario. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Bill. Mario Frankovich, of course, who is the project advisor for this uh, uh, development proposal right now from the Rancor Group for downtown. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Coronavirus is dominating the news uh, around the world, not just here in the uh, the Hamilton and, and Canadian news media. But uh, we, of course, carried the, the latest news conference yesterday from Queen's Park with the uh, medical officer of health, uh, which dealt with, among other things, misinformation that seems to be out there. And there's a lot of it. Uh, McMaster University, uh, other universities have actually hit Ryerson University in Toronto. have all had to put releases out. Uh, because there has been uh, some fake news, and I hate to use that term, but false news, really, uh, about uh, about quarantines and what the, the implications are for the coronavirus, which I, I guess shouldn't really be surprising, given some of the other stuff that we see that uh, passes as news and information these days. Simon Kiss joins us. Simon, of course, is a professor of journalism and leadership at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Simon, thank you for uh, the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. In this era of uh, of uh, social media, where anybody who's anybody is a journalist right now, if you can type and you've got a blog, or if you have access to Facebook, all of a sudden you become a journalist. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that there's a lot of misinformation that's being circulated these days. No, 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 we probably shouldn't. Um, but uh, it is also also kind of also entertaining the the flip side i mean the the risk of uh, fake news and misinformation is profound in today's age but uh if you watch uh scientists and public health officials on twitter and social media you can actually also see some pretty amazing engagement where people are actively um sort of exchanging their results in real time as they work quickly to kind of uh, look at this advice uh the 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 virus so um it's definitely happening, definitely a problem, but there's always a flip side to, to, to these things. Well, that's, that's the, the, I guess, the problem a lot of people are facing right now, Simon, is they want information. I mean, this is obviously a very important story. Uh, we've seen the numbers growing almost daily now. Uh, we've seen the fact that, obviously, there, there are cases in Toronto, and is it going to happen here? So uh, we want to get information, but I, I guess the question a lot of people are going to have right now is where do they go to get that information? Yeah, I mean that's that's the perennial question, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, um, my advice to people is is always that on balance, you're best adv- advised to uh, follow the authorities. So you should, people should be looking to um, the public health offices in uh, in Ontario and Canada and and uh, follow their advice. Um, they're by no means perfect, um, uh, and that can bring with it its its own. Uh, challenges and its own risks, but uh, on balance, uh, you're really best uh, best advised to to do what um, public health offices in Ontario and Canada advise you to do. But it's also worth kind of putting into perspective and thinking about this. Um, you know, we're getting motivated by fears of the coronavirus, and people are kind of scrambling to find out information, and they're they're concerned about it. Um, but let's not forget, you know, the annual flu uh, is. Uh, that we're not really talking about and that people are less motivated to learn about and take action about uh, is, is in some ways even more risky than, than things like this. So I was looking at the numbers in preparation for this. You know, 44 people in, in Canada died from SARS, but every year several thousand people in Canada die from, from the regular flu. Uh, but we're not kind of scrambling to find out information about how best to protect ourselves against the influenza. So um, <clears throat> while people are kind of scrambling through social media and trying to think about who best to follow and trying to follow the latest updates. It's worth taking a breath and um, uh, putting any possible risks from something acute and, and new and, and foreign like this, putting that into context of, of something that we face every year. 
It's interesting to, to parlay that into what we've seen from some of the quote-unquote experts, the medical officers of health and, and doctors that have, have gone forward and are making public declarations about what we should do and, and giving us updates on what's happening. Because I've, I've noticed that, Simon, that uh, they seem to slide right in about, you know, they're talking about the coronavirus. But, oh, by the way, uh, the preventive measures we're talking about are also preventative measures for the flu, which you should be doing anyway. So that, that's not lost on them. And I guess it's, it's in kind of a roundabout, bizarre way. It's an opportunity for them to kind of get back to to focusing on not just the coronavirus, but the other thing that we should be concerned about this time of year, and that is the influenza epidemic that could happen uh, at any given time. As as you mentioned, more people die from that than they do from what's gone on with uh, some of these other so-called crises. That's that's exactly right, and they do that for a very good reason. You know, in in the public health offices um, and the uh, ministries of health, you know, they have the time and the opportunity and the the duty and the, the resources to kind of look at these soberly and put uh, threats and risks into kind of context. And so they know very well that uh, from a sort of a 30,000-foot level, the annual flu is a bigger threat than probably much of what we're dealing with. But uh, people's emotions and people's, uh, you know, reasoning uh, in the kind of the mass public that we're all kind of subject to doesn't really work that way. So uh, kind of the experts need us to think or try sort of want us to kind of think um, about kind of the big threats like the annual flu, but we don't always go along with that. So, so they have to take opportunities like this where we're paying attention and we're concerned to kind of direct us to um, pay attention to some of the more run-of-the-mill risks that are actually more dangerous. Interestingly enough, and maybe this is just human nature, I suppose, uh, that we don't pay much attention to things like this, to public health and, and the possibility of, of, of epidemics and things of this nature until all of a sudden it becomes news. And then all of a sudden we seem to be laser focused on it. Uh, you'd like to think that we're going to maintain that kind of uh, attention to it, but usually it doesn't happen. No, no. And that's basically a human nature thing. Um, I, you know, there is a lot, a lot of research done into why we perceive risks uh, the way that we do. And, um, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, um, you know, our, our risk perception system was kind of formed basically in the plains of the savannah. And uh, it kind of makes sense there to kind of be paying attention to, um, kind of big new or kind of, uh, un- unusual risks. Um, and so that's how we process information, but the actual threats to our health are actually not necessarily big new frightening, scary things that uh, jump out at us. They're kind of run-of-the-mill, day-to-day things that, uh, that, that we don't necessarily all pay attention to. But absolutely, this is kind of a, a human nature question. But the sad thing is that it, it has real costs. People suffer because our, our risk perception system is basically kind of skewed by processes of evolution. Let me ask you, just give me your opinion on this, Simon. From what you've seen since this story broke and has become international news, how would you grade the way the media has handled this? Uh, I don't think they've done a too bad job, actually. I think uh, sort of the, from what I've seen on kind of the, the Globe and Mail and the CBC, I think they've done a reasonable job of uh, sort of sounding the alarm, putting it in context, um, and uh, uh, keeping people updated. Um, I, at first glance, I don't think that uh, sort of the, the paid professional journalists have, have done a bad job. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what the quality of, of information is on social media. I mean, it's so vast; yeah. you can't really monitor it. I mean, that will have to come in time. Uh, you know, I did see one uh, tweet that came from a Harvard public health uh, doctor, public health specialist, and, and he used some rhetoric in a tweet about some of the early information about how fast the virus spread, and he, he used some pretty inflammatory language to sort of say that that uh, the virus would be. Uh, very, very, very bad, and I, I think that was maybe a little unfortunate and uh, overstated. And I think he didn't really have the good, ep- sort of the best evidence to kind of make that claim. Uh, so there, there is some hype that's happening on social media. Absolutely, as always, uh, Simon. Always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Simon Kiss, of course, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. So, how is the city doing and handling? Uh, what's been going on over the last little while. Obviously, the locals here are concerned about this. We mentioned 
that uh, there was uh, some misinformation about a, a quarantine at McMaster University and the residences, which is not true, by the way. McMaster had to scramble to send some information out about that. Mohawk College and other institutions uh, are also involved in this because this is, you know, these are all places where the public gathers, and there's always a concern about uh, contamination and spreading of this, uh, if it's even going to be around here. Well, uh, to get that perspective, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Bart Harvey to the program. Uh, Dr. Harvey is the Associate Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Doctor, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure, Bill. Nice to speak with you. Well, listen, Doc, when, when something like this breaks, and, and obviously maybe the initial reaction a lot of us might have is, oh, that's China. That's way over there. We're, we're okay. I shouldn't have much of a problem. Uh, now it's in Canada. Uh, you guys take much more professional approach to this sort of information. What, what plan does the city have uh, to prepare and, and, and to be preventative, I guess, in, uh, with this sort of thing? I mean, there's an awful lot of, of concern being raised right now. And uh, we look, to, to obviously, to your department and other departments like this to kind of set the record straight. Sure. No, I appreciate that, Bill. And um, just to maybe make a comment about your first comment, uh, anybody who said that's just China over there, obviously wasn't around in 2003. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think our experience with SARS and now with uh, the Middle East coronavirus, um, and the reality is the world is very small with uh, jet travel. It's a global world. You can, be in, you can go from any spot in the world to any other spot in the world in, what, a mere 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So we're all globally connected. So whatever's happening anywhere, we need to pay attention to it, and, and we are. And, and I guess in that context, I'm going to, and I understand and I fully appreciate kind of the notion of we're Hamiltonian, so we're Hamilton-centric, and I love that, and that's important. But in an issue like this, quite frankly, we are the globe. So Hamilton Public Health is part of a, a provincial network, uh, 33 other local public health departments, and more importantly, the ministry. And really in this issue, as far as the planning and the communication, et cetera, the folks at Public Health Ontario and the Ministry of the Health are, are leading that, and the 34 other health units, we're kind of following, we're being involved, and even provincially, we're connected into the Public Health Agency of Canada that is then connected into the World Health Organization. So Hamilton Public Health is really one node in, in this instance in an international network, and we get to benefit from all of the knowledge, all of the insight, all of the surveillance, all of the data that's being collected worldwide, rather than being limited to what we have in Hamilton. I, I can remember years ago when I was on city council having a, a, a meeting with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, of course, uh, from the, your department, uh, and she basically was uh, educating us about pandemics, uh, which is a word that we'd heard and seen movies about and uh, all this sort of stuff. But she says, yeah, it's it's a real thing uh, that the world, not just the Hamilton community, but the world needs to be aware of. And and that was the essence of what she was saying at that time, is that, you know, it's a small world now. I mean, all it takes is for one person from that province in China to get on a plane and come to Washington State or to Toronto or wherever the case might be. And, and you've got a problem and a concern. And, and as a municipality, we have to be prepared for that and have a plan. And, and Bill, that's a great segue. Because my understanding at present is while the media is rightfully reporting there are all kinds of cases that are now being identified in other countries outside of China, including the two uh, that were identified in the last few days uh, down the road in Toronto, these are all cases that were infected in China. So they were exposed to the virus in China. They had enough time to travel while the virus was still incubating in them that they didn't develop symptoms and weren't diagnosed till they got to France, till they got to Australia, till they got to Washington State, till they got to Canada. Um, our important role is to be able to, A, predict that that's going to happen for sure, and B, prepared to, as quickly as possible, have those people identify themselves as this gentleman and his wife in Toronto did when they got off the plane. They got the brochure from the border service folks. They read it. When he was symptomatic, they called uh, the emergency services in Toronto, just like our colleagues here in Hamilton, were prepared. They responded to the call with the, prof- with the appropriate professional um, personal um, protection equipment so that the, the medics weren't putting themselves at risk. Sunnybrook Hospital was ready, and they have their usual routine. 
So, so the vantage point is we expect that, well, the virus has arrived, but, but the planning and the preparations are when somebody presents that is potentially infected with the virus, that we, all, we have all the right protective uh, processes in place to essentially keep the virus with that person and as much as we can reduce, ideally eliminate the risk of them transmitting it to somebody else. And quite frankly, even looking at that, so, so this man and this woman's family, because they're close contacts, they're now being monitored. So it's, it's trying to wall off the virus and give the virus as little possibility as, as, um, as available to be able to infect somebody else. Got about a minute left here, and maybe sure. just to allay the concerns that some people may have about this too, Doctor, is I, 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 I assume it's still going on because it certainly did when I was on council. Uh, your department, along with other emergency service departments here in the city, you guys do dry runs on this stuff all the time. You, in other words, you've got a game plan, uh, and you, you develop scenarios, and you know this is the way it's going to go. So you're not going to get caught flat-footed anytime with any of this stuff. Right? It's just a matter of enacting the plan that you've already got in place. We, we, we try not to get caught flat-footed, and, and you're right, Bill, um, and there's been lots of discussion. Um, you know, the chief and the deputy chief of paramedics were in, in conversation. Uh, they had a teleconference with, you know, um, first responders, the two hospitals, public health yesterday afternoon for exactly that reason, comparing information, who's heard what, who knows what, how we and and then you know with the first responders also making sure that uh, you know that we're protecting them as much as possible. Certainly the paramedics because they're going to be primarily called um, fire because they may respond to a call before paramedics get there. But yeah, lots of talk, lots of planning, lots of preparation, and quite frankly, we hope at the end of the day we never have to put it into play. But but that's what we're doing, and that's what. Our partners across Hamilton, the hospitals, uh, paramedic services, and in adjoining communities. So we're involved with uh, uh, provincial teleconferences of all the medical officers of health um, across the province uh, now three times a week with uh, the chief MOH and the associate chief MOH and, and folks, our colleagues from Public Health Ontario. So lots of discussion, lots of preparation. Certainly our colleagues in Toronto have moved one step beyond because they now have two individuals who have been infected with the virus and they're taking the appropriate actions to, again, as I outlined earlier, those actions to essentially wall off the virus and make it as, as little a chance as possible that that virus can get from one of those infected individuals to, um, to another individual. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the uh, time and especially for the information today. Greatly appreciate it. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. My pleasure, Bill. Nice talking with you. Dr. Bart Harvey, of course, Associate Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.